whatever. So you'd be doing a cold, cold open where you'd already be talking about something and yeah. one of us would have to say something smart, witty or funny. Yeah. And then we'd seize on that opportunity and that would be the start of the podcast. Yeah. I think that could work really well for us. I mean, we just got to wait yeah. for... Ideal. If you say something smart or funny now, then we, we're set. Yep. All right, I'll give it a shot. Here we go. Cut. Ready? <laughs> uh, no, I'm man. Sorry. Okay. Well, well here we welcome are. to Med Conversations. <laughs> um, another blistering episode with your two funny and smart hosts, Scott and Rahul. I'll let you guess which one's which. Uh, sorry we've been away. I see we say this every time, but I, now I feel like it's part of the ritual apologizing for not having done a podcast <laughs> recently. Uh, we've been busy, so get off our backs, Mom. Um, anyway, today we're going to be talking about pacemakers and how to deal with them. Scott, do you have any thoughts about pacemakers? Yeah, like uh, they were pretty confusing to me before this podcast. I think hopefully I learned a lot preparing for it with you, and uh, hopefully I'll c- continue learning a lot. Um, and yeah, I think there's some really simple practical rules that would be pretty useful for everyone, even if you don't want to be a, a budding, well, a, an actual cardiologist like Roel is now. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah, as of, uh, well, technically today, yeah, as of today, I'm an actual cardiologist. That's pretty sweet. Uh, before you were just getting advice from a random guy. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they're really, they really can be quite daunting, pacemakers that is, also cardiologists, but pacemakers can be quite daunting for a lot of junior doctors. I suppose... Like a lot of things, there's different versions of pacemakers. You've got PPM in the past history, and that's all someone really knows about a pacemaker, right? PPM, and that's it. Or you can fully understand different types of pacemakers, how they're implanted, all the different settings and the things that can go wrong. And you want to be, I think, if you're a non-cardiologist, somewhere in the middle of that spectrum where you know that things can go wrong, you know what to look out for, but you know you don't necessarily need to know all the physics of it. But I'm going to teach you all the physics anyway. So we're going to start off with... Uh, going through the basics of what is a pacemaker and defibrillator. We're going to talk about some of the indications for pacemakers insertion, and then we're going to do a quick pacemaker programming session, which Roel has <laughs> tried to keep brief. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to rein in his enthusiasm. <laughs> then we're going to talk about how we put in a pacemaker. Uh, we're going to talk briefly about pacemaking modes and defibrillators. And then we're going to talk about removing a pacemaker and complications from a pacemaker that might indicate removal. Yeah, so, but let's start off with a bit of history. I like medical history. And so the idea of electricity in the body sort of came about in 1786 with Luigi Galvani, who's got a last name that's been applied to many principles and many measurements and ideas in electricity and physics. But Galvani was applying electricity to frogs' legs and noticed that the muscles twitched and sort of came up with the idea that there is electricity or bioelectricity in the body, and that mediates how at least some part of it works. And only two years later, there was a guy named Charles Kite, who was an English physician, and he was interested in the difference between being in a state of what he called suspended animation, so sort of, I guess, semi-dead, and irreversible death. And he had this idea that you could use electricity potentially to bring someone back from suspended animation or reanimate the dead. And he actually did this. He, he had the invented the first defibrillator of sorts, and I think he would take drowning people and shock them with huge amounts of electricity probably unnecessarily large amounts of electricity, <laughs> but he would bring them back to life. And so the idea of defibrillation to restore life was, was born. And we know now that the application of electricity to cardiac muscle cells or indeed any muscle cells can induce a depolarization and a contraction. And that is, in essence, the very purpose of a pacemaker, Scott. It's to make the heart contract using electricity when it won't do so itself. But, you know, similar to Charles Kite, we now have a defibrillator, um, and that is slightly different. That's for monitoring dangerous fast heart rhythms, so 
ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, those heart rhythms that sort of lead to death pretty quickly if you don't do something about them, it recognizes those and the defibrillator can provide a large amount of energy to quite literally defibrillate the heart and cause it to beat again. So you essentially shock it back and reset it all. So that's kind of the history of pacemakers, but there's a lot in between there, which is really interesting. We won't get stuck into. But Scott, tell me what you know about the components of a pacemaker and a defibrillator. What actual pieces are there? Well, I know you've got the leads that go into the atria and the ventricles, mm -hmm. and they obviously like electrical leads carrying electrical charge. And then you've got the generator, the thing that sits there, and it's usually kind of on their chest, and you can feel it when you do an exam. Yeah, that's right. So in essence, it's actually pretty simple. You've got wires or leads, like Scott called them, which are insulated electrical conductors that deliver the electricity to the heart surface. And that makes sense. You've got to have something to deliver the electricity there. Um, and most of them are what we call active fixation. So they actually have a little screw. You might be wondering, how do they stay in the heart? They've got a little screw on, on the end of them that you screw into the heart muscle, and then they sort of scar or fibros into there and become almost a part of the heart. And like Scott said, you've also got the generator or the can or the computer. You know, This is the bit that actually picks up the electrical signals from the leads and can work out what's going on in the heart and can then therefore provide electricity to the heart to make it pump or pace. And like Scott said, you know, it's usually found on the chest and you can feel it if you're looking for it. If you want to know someone has a pacemaker, you can actually feel for it. If you were going to feel for a pacemaker and work out where it was, Scott, where would it normally be found? Yes, I usually feel around on the left side of the chest and just below the clavicle. Yeah, that right? that's right. Yeah, so it's almost always on the left. There's some very rare exceptions to that. And that's because it's anatomically a bit smoother to get down to the heart through the veins from the left side. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. But yeah, in essence, the generator or the computer is a battery and a computer together that will, um, will keep the pacemaker going or really makes up the pacemaker. Okay, so you've got this generator sitting on the outside of the chest and then you've got these leads that go through the chest to the heart and they both sense information and also can like carry electrical charge to the heart. Okay, That's, that's bang on. And then I guess the other part of a pacemaker which doesn't lie in the patient's chest but is, is, the, gen, is the programmer that you use to communicate with it. So you've got this computer and this setup in the patient but you want to be able to reprogram it and check that it's working and make sure that all the... The, you can check what arrhythmias they might have had and diagnose things. And so you need something called a programmer, which every company has a specific programmer for their brand of pacemaker. You can use that programmer to wirelessly communicate with the computer and see what's going on and see if you need to change any settings. So those are kind of all the major parts. Um, just on the programmer, it's really important to know what brand of pacemaker the patient has. And that's tricky at two in the morning, someone who doesn't know what brand of pacemaker they have. But there's a few tricks. Do you know what you can do, Scott, to find out what someone's what type of pacemaker someone has so that you can use a programmer to communicate with it? Um, look through their notes. Call their cardiologist. Yep, uh, it's two in the morning. You can uh, do a chest X-ray and try and um, have a look and see what kind of pacemaker or defibrillator it looks like. Yeah, you can. You need. It's actually quite hard, but there is an AI smartphone app that was invented by these guys that you can take a photo of the chest X-ray and it'll actually tell you with reasonable accuracy what brand of pacemaker it is. So that's pretty cool. It's free. Oh. I can't remember what it's called. Well, I'll put that on the show notes. <laughs> um, but you can also just rifle through their wallet. And if you happen to find out something about their pacemaker, great. But otherwise, you might find 50 bucks. <laughs> so it's a win-win, basically. Yeah, yep. you just can't lose. Classic cardiology. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of people will carry a ID card or a pacemaker identification card. And that'll tell you the brand of their pacemaker. 
So next we're gonna talk about the different types of pacemakers that are out there because it can get pretty confusing. And we're not gonna talk about everything here because there's a whole bunch of new technology coming out, but this would be like 95 to 99% of what you see. So Scott, what types of implantable pacemakers or devices are there? So there's pacemakers, which pace the heart by providing that lead to set off that muscle depolarization. Mm-hmm. And then there's defibrillators, which defib the heart, give a really big charge and kind of reset everything. That's right. Yeah, they shock the heart. And pacemakers, the first bit you mentioned, can be broken into how many chambers they have a wire in or a lead in. And so that gives you the option of a single chamber pacemaker where there's only one of the cardiac chambers. Usually that would be like either the right atrium or the right ventricle. You can have a dual chamber pacemaker where there's something in the right atrium and the right ventricle. So there's a generator and two leads, one going to the right atrium and one going to the right ventricle. Yep, Yep. that's right. And then you've got a biventricular pacemaker, which actually usually has three leads. So one in the right atrium, one in the right ventricle, and one that paces the left ventricle, but not from inside the left ventricle, but rather from the veins of the heart, because you don't want anything inside the left ventricle because it would probably lead to a clot and then a stroke because there's no lungs to catch all the little clots. So just to go over that, a single chamber, which can be right atrium or right ventricle, a dual chamber, which is usually right atrium and right ventricle, and a biventricular pacemaker, which is right atrium, right ventricle, and the coronary vein to pace the left ventricle. So they would never have just a coronary sinus? No, I've never seen a coronary sinus lead alone, but you can sometimes see a biventricular pacemaker without the atrial lead. And where that's common is someone who's in AF, because if you have AF all the time, and right atrial lead can't really do much because there's so much electrical activity going on that the atrial lead can't change that or do anything. It'll right. just tell you that you're in Because your atrium are just in chaos, They're irregularly chaos. contracting in all different combinations. That's yeah. right. There's okay. just electricity flowing everywhere. So those are the three types of pacemakers. And, and essentially, one of the big things to note, we'll talk about biventricular pacemakers later because they're a bit more complex and a bit more niche. Um, but in that single chamber, which is only usually the right ventricle, or the dual chamber, which is the right atrium and the right ventricle, why might you want a dual chamber over a single chamber, Scott? Why might you want to have be able to sense and pace both the right atrium and the right ventricle? Well, I, I think the main reason is because you want to synchronize the contraction of the right ventricle and the left ventricle. Right? The right atrium and the right ventricle. Oh, sorry, the right. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. But for a biventricular pacemaker, yes, between the left ventricle and the right ventricle. But we'll right. talk about that later. So yeah, for a dual chamber pacemaker, you want to synchronize the atria and the ventricles because that's how your heart normally contracts. So normally you get the atria to contract to push blood into the ventricles and then the ventricles give a big push and get the blood out to the body. So you want your pacemaker to imitate that because otherwise your atrium can contract against a closed valve, a closed mitral or tricuspid valve. And that can make people feel a little bit average and short of breath and make blood go the wrong way. So that's when a dual chamber is used. And we'll talk more about that later, but just so you know, The three main types of pacemakers are a single chamber, a dual chamber, and a biventricular pacemaker, which is sort of like three chambers. And then, of course, a defibrillator that can actually deliver a big shock. Yeah, and sometimes um, defibrillators can be both, right? You can get a combined defibrillator pacemaker. Defibrillators actually these days all pace. So if you've got a defibrillator, it's also a pacemaker, but on top of that, it can do the defibrillation to save your life. So I think something that's, we'll just take a little detour here from the types of pacemakers and just talk about how you can work out whether someone has a pacemaker just by looking at the ECG. 
because it's a really handy skill to look at that. You, patients don't often tell you or know exactly what's happened in the past, and if you can see that, it's, it's great. Um, so if you have an ECG from someone who is currently pacing in the ventricle, Scott, currently delivering pace to the ventricle, what might that ECG look like? We'll see a little pacing spike. Yep. And then if it's pacing from the ventricle, then you'll probably have a long QRS, right? That's right. So just to quickly wind back um, and discuss the uh, conducting system anatomy or the electrical system anatomy of the heart. Everything starts up in the sinoatrial node up at the right atrium, and that's what sets the pace of the heart. That sort of, if you went to a private school, the coxswain of the rowing boat, he's calling out stroke, stroke, and or she, and the heart is beating every time with that. Uh, and then from the sinoatrial node or the SA node, you go down to the through the atria and the atria contract, and to the AV node, which is the atrioventricular node, which sits at the border between the two. And that then conducts the electricity through that fibrous skeleton of the heart, which is so electricity can only go through there, to the ventricles. And then through the ventricles, it goes down the bundle of his into the bundle branches, the left and right bundle branches, around to the Purkinje fibers, and then into, finally into the ventricular muscles and causes the ventricles to contract. And that every time, every second in your life, that is happening repeatedly, uh, constantly and very reliably. But when you get a left bundle branch block, what happens there, Scott? So um, I, I guess as you were saying, the bits of the ECG correlate to different bits of that contraction process. So the P wave is the atrial contraction and the QRS is the ventricular contraction. That's right. So if you have a, your question was about the ventri if you have a well, ventricular lead. Well, if you have a left bundle branch block, even without a lead. Okay. In. That means it's taking a lot longer to get into that left bundle branch that's kind of contracting slower. Um, so it's starting on the right and going to the left. That's right, yeah. And so on an ECG, it looks like a really broad QRS because you're not using the fast information superhighway that is the bundle branches. You're actually going from each individual myocardial cell to the next one very slowly. And so you get a big, broad QRS, which, as Scott says, represents ventricular contraction. That's big and broad. And it happens that when you, that happens in V1, you get a big negative wave and in V6, a big positive wave. And some of you might have learnt the saying or the acronym William Marrow, which is with a left bundle, so William, W-I-L-L, -L, you get a W appearance in V1 and an M in V6. And with a right bundle, that's Marrow, the RR, you get an M appearance in V1 and a W appearance in V6. So they're kind of the opposite of each other, more or less. It doesn't work out necessarily as cleanly as that, but quite honestly, that if you use that tool, that will last you until you're a cardiology registrar. So yeah. that's pretty fine. It's a good basic tool. So why am I rabbiting on about bundle branch blocks here? Well, the V lead, the ventricular lead in a normal, in most pacemakers, is hooked into the right ventricle. Remember we said that you don't want to put something in the left ventricle because you can develop a clot on it and then you'll have a stroke and Darvo will be very unhappy with me. So you have to wake up Darvo. You have to wake up Darvo. <laughs> He's struggling enough. Leave him alone. Yeah. <laughs> So if you've plugged something into the right ventricle to keep Darvo happy, then that electricity is now spreading from right to left. So what type of bundle branch block might that look like on an ECG, Scott? So it's taking longer for the left side to contract, so it'd be a left bundle branch block. That's right, yeah. So if you see a big, broad left bundle branch block pattern, which, let's go back to William, looks like a W in V1 and an M in V6, and you see a pacing spike, 
it's probably the patient probably has a pacemaker and sometimes even when you don't see the the pacing spike because the pacing spike sometimes isn't super obvious you can still suspect that they have a pacemaker and then you can look on which side of the chest scott and see if they have a little box there Hmm, which side is the heart on? <laughs> I'm going to go... Scientists still aren't sure. Yeah, not sure. <laughs> left side. <laughs> yeah, left side. Although occasionally you'll have a right side device. But yeah. yeah. So that's very interesting if someone listening to this hasn't worked that out yet. <laughs> Maybe they missed primary school, high school, they've just started med school. I don't this know. Is, I, people are thinking about substituting our podcast for med school now. <laughs> We're in talks with the government. Um yeah, so I think the other thing to know that I get a lot of phone calls about, this is maybe for some of you who are like intern or resident level, is that it's really hard to determine ischemic changes, so like STEMI patterns and T-wave inversion and all that sort of stuff, when someone has a paced rhythm. Basically impossible. I almost ignore the ECG. So, Do you use the Scarbossa criteria or you don't like it? Not really. There's only one thing on the Scarbossa criteria. This is a bit of a digression, but there's one thing on the Scarbossa criteria that really works, and that is if the ST changes, so depression or elevation, are in the same direction as the mm. QRS. If that's happening, then that's reliable. Everything else is kind of a bit wishy-washy. Okay. So I think that's, a, that's an important type. So and how do you spell Scarbossa for anyone who wants to look it up? <laughs> S-G-A-R-B-O-S-S-A. Scarbossa. Okay. It would be a good pirate name. Scarbossa. Scarbossa. <laughs> um, so that's what someone who has a pacemaker will look like on an ECG. And keep in mind, that's if they're pacing in the ventricle. If they're not actually pacing then and they have their own conduction going, then their ECG is just going to look like whatever their ECG normally looks like. Okay. Let's go to a case, Scottus. All right. Um, Matt, Did you have one prepared or? Let's see here. <laughs> yeah, pull out <laughs> your book of cases. Pull out my memory book. Um, <laughs> Matsumoto, a 73-year-old plum jam magnate, is helicoptered into your hospital directly from PlumCon 2023. Ah, I remember uh, PlumCon 2023. <laughs> Only a month ago. It's great. Yeah, it was top stuff. <laughs> Due to having a syncopal episode. Um, he is conscious on arrival, but has a heart rate of 35 beats per minute in a Mobitz type 1 atrioventricular block. So, Roel, what should be checked prior to considering pacemaker implantation in Matsumoto? And does he have a strong indication? Yep, this is a great question. I know, because I wrote it. Um, look, in someone who's had syncope and bradycardia and you think their heart rate's really slow, it's always really good to check whether there's a reversible cause of that bradycardia. Because, and we're going to talk about indications for pacemakers soon, but one of the things you don't really want to do to someone is give them a permanent device in their heart that comes with all the problems that they come with when they maybe had a reversible condition that could be fixed by, say, replacing something or changing a drug. That makes sense. So in anyone with a bradycardia or a slow heart rate, first you want to make sure there's something reversible before you look at a permanent um, solution permanent like a pacemaker. Yep. That's right. So what sort of reversible things might we be able to look at, Scott? So the, the first thing we always look for in the Gen Med ward is um, well, what um, rate slowing drugs a patient's on. Yeah, that's right. And so the classic ones would be a beta blocker, a calcium channel blocker, usually centrally acting like diltiazem or verapamil, or digoxin. Those are sort of the three main ones. And now that's a tricky one because, yes, they're reversible, but some patients really need them. So you need to weigh up if they really need them. And if they do, you might put a pacemaker anyway to allow them to be on that. So rate-slowing drugs, one of the first things to check when someone comes in with a slow heart rate. What else, Scott? So electrolytes, um, particularly potassium and calcium being the most important, but sometimes 
magnesium i don't know your thoughts on phosphate but i guess yeah. <laughs> possibly <laughs> yeah um yeah potassium and calcium are definitely the big ones uh, offenders for rhythm issues but it's good to know about any of them because if someone has a crazy electrolyte abnormality maybe you try and replace it and see what happens and see if they if that all improves and, and perhaps they could avoid a pacemaker what about a little organ that sits where your necktie does, Scott? That necktie that you wear every day. The bow tie I wear to work. Yeah, <laughs> <a> true <laughs> ID a, physician. Because I've got a great personality. Yeah. Um, a thyroid function test. Is yeah. Look, I could count on zero hands the amount of times I've seen a thyroid function test be <laughs> responsible for um, a bradyrrhythmia. But theoretically, it's possible that someone's hypothyroid, their thyroid's not working enough, and that's causing their heart to not move fast enough. Um, now, this one's a big one you should probably get an echocardiogram if you can before putting a pacemaker because it'll show you what the heart function is like and maybe someone has an undiagnosed heart muscle disorder like HCM, which is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or sarcoidosis. Now, this is all rare stuff, but you should particularly think about it because those things can change what type of device you put in. And it is a crying shame to put something in and then realize a week later that you should have put something else in and actually either have to redo the operation and throw out that very expensive device and put in a new one, or yeah, leave this person with a suboptimal device. And I guess you could see if there's sometimes ischemic kind of regional wall motion changes as well yeah, on an echocardiogram. Ischemia can be a cause as well, so it is good yeah. to see that. Usually someone will come in with like chest pain and, and it'll look like an MI, but yeah, it's good to know these things. Yeah. And get those troponins off for anyone coming in with this, just Make to sure state the obvious. Yeah. And call the cardiology register as soon as you get each one back. It doesn't matter if it's <laughs> three in the morning, <laughs> eight in the morning, you've got to call them. Particularly away. repeat ones. They just like the drama, the narrative. They, they want as many they write them all the down as possible. <laughs> Great, beautiful graphs at home. I'm not a registrar anymore, so I think you should do these things <laughs> as often as possible. Uh, and lastly, this is a bit more forward thinking. It might be worth thinking about whether they have an active infection. And you like infections, don't you, Scott? You've had a few of them. <laughs> yeah, on a personal level, I love getting infections. Yeah. Uh, why might we be interested in an infection before we put a pacemaker in someone? Well, I guess this could be another trigger of someone having an abnormal heart rhythm. And also it could affect uh, like the risk of having an infected prosthetic device. Remembering totally. that prosthetic devices are always very high risk for infection. We always yeah. worry about that. Especially if they're in the heart, as we'll speak about later, because obviously they're exposed to your blood and if you have bloodstream infection that's a problem um, so yeah it's always worth thinking about have they also come in with an infection which might make us want to wait for a day or two to get some antibiotics on board before we put a permanent device in so in Matsumoto's case he's got a pretty strong case for a pacemaker and what's one of the big things about his stem remember he was a plum magnate that could be relevant he also went to PlumCon 2023 that could be the reason it's stressful a lot of Drugs there, <laughs> presumably, yeah. like all those plum magnates hitting it up <laughs> with their. <laughs> I don't know what they do. Oh, you know. Yeah, I, know you know. I can guess actually. <laughs> <laughs> but there was something else about Matsumoto. He had a syncopal episode. He lost consciousness, and so that's pretty significant when we're thinking about whether someone might benefit from pacemaker because. Presuming it's due to the rhythm, it means that it's pretty dangerous, and they could black out and injure themselves again. Around a plum, maybe not around a plum. So I think that's really important. Now let's talk about indications for pacemakers when we've got through that. So it's never completely black and white. You need to consider the person in front of you specifically. You know, someone who's 95 and has advanced cognitive impairment or dementia and maybe, you know, doesn't have much longer may not be the best candidate to have an operation and a pacemaker that has a wound that can get infected. Um, yeah, despite, you know, guidelines, yeah. 
definitely. Definitely a risk and benefit um, situation and also a situation where you will always discuss with cardiology if you're not a cardiologist, obviously, just yes. to state the obvious. Do so, not just put so, the pacemaker in yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so don't worry about the details here. We're going to go through it so you can kind of understand what the cardiologist wants to hear when you talk to them. But Yeah, yeah so I think if we just hark back to the 10 minutes ago, possibly, where we spoke about the electrical system of the heart, we had the sinoatrial node sitting in the atria, going to the AV node or the atrioventricular node, sitting between the atrium and the ventricles, and then down into the bundles of His, the bundle branches, and then the Purkinje fibers. And so I like to think about this as things that can go wrong at any one of those stages. So back to our good friend, the SA node, the sinoatrial node. Remember, that's like the coxswain of the heart. It's calling the shots. It's telling everyone when to, telling the heart when to beat, but it can become dysfunctional. And what, what, have you heard any names of what that might be like, Scott? I think uh, sick sinus syndrome. Yeah, sick sinus syndrome, which just means like a diseased sinus node. And, and what that means is that, you know, when your heart might be, should be going 70 beats per minute, it's actually going 30 beats a minute, but you're still in a sinus rhythm. Or you might get really long sinus pauses, so really long pauses between the P waves where there's no contraction, say six seconds. And um, look, it's, it's a bit hard with the sinoatrial node, but really what you're looking for, and, and I touched on this before, is symptom rhythm correlation. Those are golden words, symptom rhythm correlation, because that tells you that the, the rhythm is actually causing symptoms. So for example, if someone comes in with a heart rate of 45, but they're talking to you, they're fine, maybe they're an athlete, Scott. Do you think that's someone who needs a pacemaker if they say they have no symptoms at all? No. No? No. Um, you haven't been spending enough time with the pacemaker companies. Back <laughs> <laughs> to school for you, Scott. Yeah. Um, yeah, so if they don't have symptoms, that could be them, especially athletes. They're very fit. They have a low resting heart rate. But if someone comes in with a five-second pause and almost blacks out, that's a different story. And so, you know, it is a bit of a weighing up of those things. So it's not the number itself, but it's the correlation between this slow heart rhythm and symptoms. That's right. Yep. That's okay. right. And, and, you know, as a general rule, someone will get symptomatic once they get past four or five seconds of sinus pause. People tolerate it otherwise pretty well. And I was telling Scott before, I've had people refer to me patients with one-second pauses, which... Just think about it in, you know, how many beats per minute. So it's 60 beats a minute. So that's actually a normal heart rate. <laughs> Is it 3 a.m. or? Yeah. <laughs> when else are you going to call it that information? Um, and then the other thing with the sinus node is this thing called chronotropic incompetence. I like it because it makes you sound really smart. But really, chronotropy is just, you know, how fast the heart beats. And incompetence means <laughs> Scott, if you look it up in the dictionary. <laughs> Oh, that's nice. Sorry, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So it basically means that the heart rate doesn't increase appropriately with exercise or stress. So, you know, the classic example is you might get like a 60-year-old person who tells you they're really dizzy or fatigued or tired and you put them on a treadmill and even after five minutes of walking the treadmill, their heart rate's still 70 beats per minute and they're looking like they're going to pass out. That means that SA node's not appropriately doing the coxswain thing. It's not bringing the, bringing the pain. Does that all make sense to you, Scott, from sinus node dysfunction? I mean, it would if I was competent. <laughs> <laughs> I guess anytime someone has a slow heart rate and they've had unexplained syncope, it should always be in the back of your mind, does this person have sinus node dysfunction and do they need a pacemaker? Um, and once again, like Scott said before, always consider whether on a rate-slowing drug that you could potentially stop, like a beta blocker for hypertension. There's plenty of other options for high blood pressure and maybe you can stop that and avoid a pacemaker. So that's the sinus node and sinus node dysfunction. Next up, what's the next node down the down the track there, Scott? The atrioventricular node. That's right, AV nodal block. 
And there's a lot of different causes of AV nodal block. Do you know what, what some examples are? We spoke a bit about them before. So I guess it could just be old and scarred. Mm-hmm. You could have some kind of cardiomyopathy, which could be ischemic or something else. Um, certain drugs, uh, electrolyte disturbances sometimes can also pretty cause an much, AV nodal block. Pretty much the same list as the SA nodal block, which makes it easy. And by far the most common thing is age-related fibrosis. So it's like wrinkles of the face, but in the heart. So you've got a wrinkly SA node, you've got a wrinkly AV node. Mm. It's just not doing its Look thing. Look for that also. on your MCQ, heart yeah. wrinkles. <laughs> as the cause of AV nodal block. Yeah. Um, and so again, you're going to try and re- exclude reversible causes, but the clear indications for AV nodal disease are complete heart block. Do you remember what complete heart block is, Scott, and what it looks like on an ECG? So you've got no association between the P waves and the QRS complexes. So they're both just running at different rates. And usually that's because you've got this backup kind of intrinsic rhythm coming from the QRS complex, which might be slower at like 30 or 40 or something. That's right. You've got some, one of those guys, the bundle of hist, the bundle of branches, the Pekinjis, one of them is the one that's actually telling the ventricles when to contract. And they don't have very loud voices. They're not very good coxswains. They're a bit disorganized. And so it's a dangerous rhythm to be in because they might forget to tell them to pump. Um, so that's third degree AV block where you or complete heart block where you have the atria and the ventricles doing something completely independent of each other. And that is an emergency and something that is a definite indication for a pacemaker that's life-saving. Then we've got second degree AV block where the AV node isn't completely cooked, but it isn't doing its job properly. And there are actually two, two brothers in the second degree AV block family. Scott, do you remember what they are? So Mobitz type 1 is Winky back mm-hmm. and Mobitz type 2 is second degree block. Yes, Mobitz 2 doesn't get yeah. a special name, unfortunately. Yeah. So you've got Mobitz 1, Winky back and, and what does that look like on the ECG? Remembering that complete heart block is when there's total dissociation between the P waves and the QRS complexes. What about Winky back or Winky Bach? So type 2, Mobitz 1, heart block, Winky back is when you have progressively lengthening intervals between the P waves and the QRS complexes and then you miss one. That's right. It's getting longer and longer and then one drops and then it gets short again. And the easiest way to work out whether it's Wanky Buck is to look at the one before it drops and the one after it drops because they're the two most different PR intervals rather than looking for the slight progression and lengthening because it can be super subtle. Mm, so that's a little tip. trick, yeah, for, mm. for some of the people who are maybe med-regging out there. Um, so that's Wanky Buck and Winky Bark is actually not as dangerous as uh, Mobitz 2. Mobitz 2 is where instead of getting the prolonging PR interval, you just suddenly get a dropped beat, maybe a couple in a row. You get a couple in a row, that's actually quite dangerous. But yeah, that's Mobitz 2, and that is a much more firm indication for a pacemaker. Pretty much always needs a pacemaker regardless of symptoms, whereas Winky Bark, which is the one with the slowly progressing PR interval, is a relative indication if they have symptoms. So I guess in Mobitz 2, you could have every second's beat conducted or every third third. beat conducted sometimes you hear people talk about kind of name them in those ways too right yes they might say two to one three to one four to one that sort of thing um high grade where they're getting multiple missing in a row yeah that sort of thing um and then you know just in the sort of um i'm going to put this very simply basically if you see someone who comes in with a pretty suspicious story of syncope that is to say they're out doing the gardening and just having you know nothing crazy happening and they suddenly black out and suddenly wake up and they're a bit older and you look at their ECG and they've got a bundle branch block or a really wide QRS, you should always be super suspicious that that person has had a severe bradyarrhythmia that's caused them to black out or lose consciousness. Because um, most people can be in sort of something that looks like that with a lot of disease in the bundle branches and a lot of disease in the bundle of his. But when they see you, they're okay. But intermittently, they become a lot worse and black out. And that person 
should have a strong consideration for a pacemaker. Now let's just briefly talk about biventricular pacemakers and I'll try and keep this short. Essentially I want you to think of them as a heart failure treatment. So if you ever see someone who has a biventricular pacemaker in, also called a CRT or cardiac resynchronization therapy or device, that's really for someone who has a really bad heart that's quite weak. And so it's not so much for the pacing, it's more for the pump action to kind of improve action. that pump. That's right, because those people have a broad left bundle branch block. And you said before the left bundle branch blocks cause dyssynchrony. It causes the septum to contract and then the lateral wall to contract or the other part to contract of the heart rather than everything contracting at the same time. And so you're essentially slapping the blood around rather than actually pumping it efficiently through the heart. And so the idea is that if you pace both the left ventricle and the right ventricle at the same time, you can restore some synchrony. And there are people who have what we call super response, where they actually get back to a normal heart after mm. you put in a biometric pacemaker. It's amazing. Um, but it's not so easy to predict who gets that. But definitely the biggest predictor is a broad left bundle branch block with a weak heart. Cool. And lastly, ICDs. ICDs are really like a life-saving shock device. And the easiest way to think about who gets one is anyone who's had a cardiac arrest. What does ICD stand for? Oh, right. sorry. <laughs> implantable cardioverter defibrillator. So an implantable defibrillator. Yeah. Um, so anyone who's had a cardiac arrest before, you will almost certainly get one unless there's some really strong reason they shouldn't. In terms of putting one in before someone's had a cardiac arrest, um, that's a bit harder and, and I wouldn't worry too much about that because that field is changing a lot as well. So does that all make sense, Scott? We had sinus node dysfunction, we had AV node dysfunction, we had biventricular pacemakers, which are like a heart failure therapy really for people with really weak hearts, and we had defibrillators, which for people who've had a cardiac arrest, like ventricular fibrillation before. Cool. So biventricular pacemakers are more for that um, people with reduced ejection fraction heart failure and to kind of pump them up. And the, the ICDs are given to people who are very high risk of having another um, cardiac arrest. Yeah, and often that's the same people who have really weak hearts. Um, so very mm. often you get a biventricular ICD, which mm. is, yeah, but yeah. Okay, pacemaker programming. I'm going to keep this really short because I've realized how dry this is by Scott <laughs> oh, already falling asleep. Um, so I just want to highlight a couple of really simple things. One is that there's this idea of, a th so a pacemaker delivers energy to the heart, but you might ask, how do you know how much energy to deliver to the heart? Well, you want to balance between delivering, you could deliver heaps of energy every time, but you drain that battery in six months and we'd have to change everyone's battery every six months. So what you want to do is balance delivering the right amount of energy to make the heart contract, but not so much that you drain the battery. And the way to do that is to work out, well, what's the lowest amount that I can deliver and the heart contracts? And then give yourself a safety margin, which is usually just a bit over double. So you're giving that every time. Because the amount that it takes to get the heart to contract changes over time. And what you really don't want is someone who's completely dependent on a pacemaker to go without a couple of heartbeats or more that cause them to black out even though they have a pacemaker in. So I think that's all I'll say about programming output. Um, mm. Does that concept make sense that you... Yeah, I mean, for any interns who are out there rigging up their own pacemakers with kind of batteries and, <laughs> <laughs> and everything, that's what you've got to remember. Just double the, <laughs> the yeah, threshold double, requirement yeah. and that's how many volts. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> actually, this might be a good question, Scott. What would it look like if a pacemaker is putting out an output on an ECG, but it doesn't capture the heart, doesn't cause a beat? Well, I guess you'll have a little pacemaker spike, but it won't be... Um, right before the QRS where you would That's expect That's right. It. You have a pacemaker spike not followed by a QRS or indeed a P wave if it's pacing in the atrium. But yeah, precisely right. So that's something you could look out for in the emergency department. It's, 
it's rare that pacemakers fail these days. They're so well programmed and so the machinery is so complex, but that's what it might look like if it's failing to capture the heart and if someone's coming in blacking out with the pacemaker. And then the other thing a pacemaker can do is sense. And you want them to sense because then they do intelligent things. If they're just pacing without knowing what your own heart's doing, it's going to cause trouble. And that's what pacemakers used to be. You'd set someone to 60 beats per minute and there was no way of changing it. They were just at 60 beats per minute for the rest of their life where they're walking uphill, downhill, sleeping, whatever. That mm. was their heart rate. But you don't really want that. You want something that can sense what your own heart's doing, not deliver energy on top of your own heart and maybe even change its own rate. And the way it senses is by using those leads, picking up the very small amounts of electrical activity, which is amazingly impressive because there's so much other electricity around, both around you in the world and also in your own muscles, like your pec muscles. But yeah, the pacemaker will sense what the heart's activity is doing. And you set a threshold where you say, anything above this, call heart activity. And then it'll use that to work out when to deliver its own pulses. And so if something was under sensing, so the pacemaker is not sensing properly, that would look like a pacemaker that's pacing too much because it thinks that there's not anything coming through and you'd see more pacing than needed. That's, don't worry too much about that, but the sign of undersensing or a pacemaker that's not sensing things properly is too many pacing spikes. Mm, okay. So it's, it's putting too many heart, extra heartbeats through that shouldn't need to go through. Because the main sick. thing that the pacemaker is doing most of the time is when there's no heartbeat and there should be one, the pacemaker sends a signal to make a heartbeat. That's right. Okay. It either inhibits itself, like I can't on a Friday night, or it delivers a pacing pulse if there isn't one there. Okay, and lastly, battery life. I think it's really hilarious because there used to be nuclear pacemakers, which were like a big trend. Scott and I were talking about before, like that brief period of nuclear power when everyone's like, this is the solution for everything. <laughs> the golden days. Yeah, <laughs> and so there were nuclear-powered batteries that last, they lasted 20 to 25 years. They were apparently actually pretty reliable, but obviously going into the United States was tricky uh, <laughs> or any other international boundary. And so nowadays you have a standard sort of lithium battery and most of the time, they'll last about seven to 10 years. That's a good rough estimate to give a patient if they're asking you how long it lasts for. And what you, you really want to avoid is you don't want the battery to run out of life before you replace it. Because when that happens, one, the pacemaker stops working, but two, you actually can't communicate with any anymore to sort of change the settings and get them over to a pacemaker replacement. So yeah, that's not a good time. So you can do a battery change and it's pretty quick. It takes about 20 minutes to half an hour and it's relatively easy. You don't change the leads or the electrical wires. You just take out the old generator and put a new one in. Okay, so it's pretty straightforward. So those are the main parts of pacemaker programming, looking at the output, looking at the sensing, and looking at the battery life. Um, and sometimes, well, every time we look at the lead impedance as well, but I won't, don't think it's worth worrying too much about that. So one of the probably most scary moments in my medical career was overnight in a rural hospital and where I was a dead med reg, and I was told there was a patient in VT and I kind of ran to ED and saw this young man uh, kind of turning blue with uh, long QRS, um, uh, kind of broad QRSs and like a fast rhythm about 160, but also pacemaker spikes. And the ED reg went to me, what do we do? Do we shock him? <laughs> and I was also in shock. So I just called the cardiology reg and asked him what to do. Because <laughs> yeah, I had to listen to this move. podcast, which hopefully we can kind of talk through what to do in this situation. Yeah, so it sounds like what Scott was dealing with there was something called pacemaker-mediated tachycardia. And don't worry too much about the details of it, but essentially the pacemaker thinks it's doing the right thing and it starts to um, deliver pulses really, really fast, about as fast as it can deliver. Uh, because it's sensing itself and thinking that it needs to keep up with itself. And it gets into what's called an endless loop 
or yeah, pacemaker mediated tachycardia. The good news is it's actually relatively easy to stop if you know what to do. Um, the hallmark is that you have a broad left bundle branch pacing complex. So the QRS looks broad and it has a pacing spike before each one. So it's actually the pacemaker doing it. And if you just put a magnet on top of the pacemaker, that'll solve your problems. And most emergency departments, in fact, almost all emergency departments will have a pacemaker magnet and they activate something called what's called magnet mode in the pacemaker. So we're talking about magnet mode in the pacemaker here. And what a magnet mode does for almost all pacemakers, it varies a little bit depending on brand, but what it does is it sets it to a very dumb mode that doesn't require any advanced thinking or sensing on the bar of the pacemaker. So all it does is it starts to pace at a set backup rate, which might be 40 beats per minute or 50 beats per minute. It ignores everything, all the signals that are coming in, ignores everything and just goes, I'm just going to pace and keep this person alive. Okay, so the pacemaker just stops sensing basically and just has this backup rhythm. That That's it, right. And, just keeps pacing. Yeah. and the other thing that it does is if it's an ICD or a defibrillator, it turns off shock therapies. Now, why might it want to do that? Well, sometimes, again, the computer gets it wrong in the, in the defibrillator and it can start shocking someone inappropriately. And that's very, very dangerous and extremely painful. And so your magnet's your backup. Where you might also commonly see a magnet is in the surgical theater because they use electrocautery to um, actually you know, do the operation. But the pacemaker reads that as a VT or VF, as an arrest. And so it'll start shocking the patient and maybe the surgeon too um, <laughs> if you leave it on. So that's anaesthetists will usually have a magnet as well. And lastly is the other place you might see them is in the MRI scanner. So you're all obviously aware that pacemakers contain metal ferromagnetic materials that are affected by a magnetic field. And an MRI is essentially a massive magnet. And um, I guess when the, they first came out, everyone was afraid that if you turned on a um, MRI around a pacemaker, it would rip the pacemaker out of the patient's chest. But that is not what happens, unfortunately. Um, see paper cool. by Dr. Muthalele. Yeah, see <laughs> yeah, paper in radiology 2018. <laughs> um, so what actually happens, there, there is a maybe a little bit of vibration in the device, but actually it doesn't move very much. The problem is that those leads, those wires, act like antennae. And one of the um, fields, one of the electromagnetic fields from the MRI machine actually induces electrical activity in those, um, in those leads, which a defibrillator or a pacemaker can sense as cardiac activity. And so the pacemaker senses activity. And remember, when a pacemaker is over-sensing, that means it will underpace because it thinks, hey, everything's going on all right. This guy has a heart rhythm when in fact he hasn't had a heartbeat for 20 seconds and the pacemaker isn't outputting any pulse. Same with defibrillators. It can look at that noise on the lead and it can think that it's VT or VF and start delivering shocks when the guy is just, say, sitting there having a relaxing MRI. Um, so, so a magnet you might also see used in an MRI setting where it'll again set it to just pace and ignore all the fancy functions and just pace. So if I'm a, a doctor referring a patient for an MRI who has a pacemaker... it's a great question. Can, they, can all of them have an MRI and what do I need to do? This is a really interesting point actually and I'll just quickly digress here is that... So there's something called legacy devices and something called MRI conditional devices. And the device companies have made a lot of money off MRI conditional devices. And the idea is that they've specifically tested that system to work in an MRI. But these guys have done nice studies where they've taken thousands of patients and just taken anyone who has a non-MRI conditional device and put it in an MRI. Turns out it makes almost no difference. They do make some slight modifications to the MRI conditional devices, which make them a little bit easier to use. But essentially you can do anything. But 
hospitals are a bit too afraid to do non-MRI conditional devices. So generally, if you're referring a patient for a pacemaker, they'd get a check by a pacing tech who would say, yes, this is an MRI conditional device, or no, it's not. Mm. And if it's not, most hospitals would be pretty hesitant to do it, even though it's probably safe. Mm. If it is MRI conditional, they'll go. The pacemaker tech or someone will reprogram the pacemaker before the MRI. They'll be monitored during the MRI with a SATS probe and maybe an ECG monitor. Mm. And then afterwards, you program it back to whatever it was before, and they go on their way. So yeah, it's definitely possible. People think that once you have a pacemaker, you can't have an MRI. That's not the case anymore. Certainly not the case. You can definitely get an MRI. Okay. So the pacemaker tech will be there. And is after you insert a new pacemaker, is there a period that you wouldn't want an MRI? Yeah, six weeks after a pacemaker. And yeah. the idea is that in that early phase, the pacemaker wires haven't settled into the heart. And so maybe they could dislodge. There was actually a very small study where they did patients before six weeks who needed emergency MRIs and none of them had problems. So there's probably a bit more fear in this whole area than there is actual substantial risk. Yep. However, there has been a case of asystole from someone who was in an MRI. So that was because it wasn't programmed properly. So you need someone to actually look at it and be like, this is appropriately programmed. It's okay to go ahead and then program it back afterwards. So learning point for any MRI in a patient with a pacemaker, you'll need to chat, get a referral to a pacemaker speak, technician. To yeah, speak to a cardiology and a pacemaker technician and they can make it happen. Yep. Uh, and I think this is really important because MRIs are such an important diagnostic tool that denying it to a whole bunch of people is a really dangerous thing to do. Sure. So that was a little digression about magnet mode and the use of a strong magnet to sort of set a pacemaker back to its very simple, simple mode of operation. So just quickly talking about pacemaker implantation, there's just a, I just want to make sure that you know what it is so that when patients ask you what's involved, and I think the most common time you might see that, Scott, maybe on GenMed, you've seen this. Older patient comes in, maybe the parent has a bit of um, Alzheimer's and not so cognitively great, and the, they've had a complete heart block or a fall, and the family are considering a pacemaker. And oftentimes it'll be you, if you're the med reg, or even the resident who has to tell them, they'll ask how serious an operation is. And a lot of patients think that a pacemaker is like a stenotomy, like a bypass, and that's not the case at all. It's actually quite small. So what's involved, it's actually done under local anesthesia and sedation. So the patient's like usually pretty awake. You give some antibiotics, you put a lot of local anesthetic around the chest, and then you make a little pocket, so a little incision about four centimeters long, puncture a vein with a needle and then put a wire from the vein down into the heart, into the right ventricle and the right atrium. Use that wire to then position your um, your right atrial lead and your right ventricular lead. Hook that into the battery, slip that into the pocket and then sew it up. And the whole thing really you can be done if you're fast in about 40, 45 minutes. Mm. So like you don't need general anesthetic. It's pretty manageable um, and it's a pretty small procedure. So it's not something... You know, I, th I think sometimes when elderly patients come in and we're thinking about operative management, obviously it's a big operation. We're thinking about risk to their life. Or the pacemaker, it's really not that bad. It's pretty mm. small. And the billables are pretty high as well, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, you know, you should be aware of what that is. But there are some risks. What, what are some of the risks you might think would happen when you're trying to puncture a vein and make an incision and things to heart so obviously all the normal surgical risks things like bleeding or damaging some of the veins that you access mm -hmm. um, you're near the lungs so i guess you could have a, a pneumothorax if that's your needle right. goes in the wrong place that's one of the ones that probably happens about one percent or less depending on which vein you access so it does happen but it's usually pretty easy to manage yeah uh, i guess you could perforate the heart yeah that's a big one so that's <laughs> that, that is a problem um, i've seen one or two where the person's had to go to 
emergency surgery and have that ventricle repaired. And that's unusual. I think most people wouldn't have seen many. It wasn't me. It's something that I caused the problems a pattern here. Um, I guess any surgery, anaphylaxis to some of the antibiotics or anesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess long-term failure of the leads. That's a big one. Because if you're putting a pacemaker in a young person or a defibrillator in a young person who's had, let's say, a cardiac arrest while playing sport... They've got another, let's say they're 20 years old, they're going to live to 80. They've got another 60 years for those leads to last and they probably won't last that long. And once you're trying to get new leads in, all the veins are sort of sclerosed, fibrosed and actually obstructed and it becomes very hard to get them in. So that's a really important one to think about. That's one of the ones we get more concerned about. Mm. And alongside that is one that's relevant to you, Scott, being the master of infections is <laughs> long-term infection and short-term infection. Yeah, so we get lots of referrals for this of blood cultures in a patient who has a pacemaker and you always need to consider whether the, whether the pacemaker has been infected. And if it is, then it's very difficult to remove a, um, these pacing leads, right? Yeah, um, yeah, we'll talk about this a bit later, but it's, um, it's a big operation. Like I'm talking very large. So, um, and, and just to clarify, you, patients, the two presentations that I'll often see will be these bacteremias with a query around a pacemaker lead infection, so the bit that's sitting in the heart, or it'll be um, a pacemaker pocket infection, which is an infection on the chest wall where you've inserted the generator. Yeah, and the pacemaker pocket infection is a lot less serious than the lead infection because the pocket, um, you know, it hasn't spread into the bloodstream yet, hopefully. And you can hopefully just open that up, maybe debride it if you really need to, or even just give antibiotics if it's not that serious. Depends on some of the wound characteristics. But once it gets into the bloodstream and you've got fevers and bacteremia, blood cultures are positive, um, it's getting pretty tricky and you're in a bit of trouble. Mm. So if the lead is infected, do we talk about this later? or? Yeah, we talk about it later. Okay, we'll yeah. talk about that later, but, but you know, watch ju- this space. <laughs> <laughs> just to summarise, so bleeding, pneumothorax, tamponade from perforating the heart, failure of the pacemaker leads in the long term, and infection of the pacemaker leads both in the short and the long term are the main risks of a pacemaker. Okay, let's go to a case. We got Jimmy, a 49-year-old professional oyster shucker who presents to the ED because he's been getting short of breath and dizzy when pulling off shucking tricks at some of his larger, more fancy parties. He initially put it down to old age, about to hit his 50s, but a few close calls with blackouts have made him want to get checked out. You, very smartly, do an ECG that demonstrates that he has a second degree Mobitz II atrioventricular nodal or AV nodal block. So second degree Mobitz II AV nodal block. You call the cardiology team and you wonder what type of device might they recommend to Jimmy. Would they want A, a defibrillator, B, a biventricular pacemaker, C, a dual chamber pacemaker, which is the atrium and the ventricle, or D, a single chamber atrial pacemaker, which is just the atrium. So the disease is in the atrioventricular node. So do you think an atrial pacemaker would do the job? No. Mm. I think you'll probably at least want a dual chamber pacemaker with pacing on the right ventricle. Um, and as to whether you need a biventricular pacemaker, I, I don't see anything in the story about him having heart failure. That's right. So I would probably lean against that. That's right, yeah. So the biventricular pacemaker, remember, is really for someone who has quite advanced heart failure, and that's not what Jimmy's got. Jimmy has some conduction disease. He's got a block in his AV node, and he just needs a pacemaker that can take care of that whenever that becomes a problem for him. I want to briefly talk about pacing modes now. And this is something that does come up on med school exams and resident exams. And it's more practical to know. 
You might have heard letters like VVIR or DDD, and that describes what a pacemaker is doing. I'm going to try and simplify this for you here. The standard nomenclature is this. You've got four positions that you can have a letter in. The first position is the chamber that the device paces in, so where it actually paces. And obviously your answers can be A for atrium, V for ventricle, or D for dual chamber, which is both of them. So the first letter is the device that paces in. Now, it feels a bit almost nonsensical. I think everyone feels that the first letter should really be where it senses, but it's where it paces. And if you're pacing both ventricles, is that a V for ventricle or a D for dual chamber? Then you just call it CRT. So you kind of ignore this whole code. Okay, so this is just for, this isn't for CRT. Okay. More, more or less, yeah. yeah. CRT, you just work that out by, no, I'll write CRT okay. on it. Um, the second position is the chamber that the device is sensing. So remember the first position is the device that it's pacing, then it's the device, that, the chamber that's sensing. And that's the same letters as the first, A, V, or D. But it can also be O for no chamber sensed. And remember we, can we talked about a pacemaker having that very simple mode of operation where it senses nothing and just paces. But So A, V, or D. So if it's A, it's sensing the atrium. If it's V, it's sensing the ventricle. If it's D, it's sensing both. And then you've got your third position. And this, I think, needs to be phrased properly. And then once you hear it, it'll make sense. The third position tells you what the pacemaker does in response to sensing intrinsic cardiac activity, to sensing your own cardiac activity. So the options are I for inhibit. So if it senses something in the ventricle, it'll inhibit. It won't give out a pulse because it now knows that you've got your own pulse. Or T for triggered, but don't worry too much about that because we don't use that anymore. The other one to know is D, which is dual. And that I'll explain a little bit more later, but basically what it implies is that if it senses something in the atrium, it'll pace the ventricle to keep that atrioventricular synchrony going. So really I only want you to think of the third position as if it responds to intrinsic cardiac activity, it can either inhibit itself and not deliver a pace, or it can um, do what's called dual, where it triggers a pace because it sent something in the atrium and it wants to preserve that synchrony. It can't switch between modes. It's yeah, they can switch between modes, um, but that's probably more okay. advanced than what cool. you need to know. Yeah. So one, if you can get that, you've really got a lot of this down. It takes a while to head your, wrap your head around, but just to go back, Scott, so the first position is what? So the first position is the chamber that the device paces in. So the, the chamber, atrium, ventricle, or dual, that the device delivers the charge that's to pace right. the heart. And the second position? So the second spot is um, the same set of letters, and this is just the chamber that the device is sensing. Yeah, maybe S for second is sensing. Maybe that's the way you could remember it. Never done it, but yeah, give it a try. Write us in and let us know how it works. And then your third position is what the pacemaker does when it senses your own cardiac activity. And so it can either inhibit, i.e. not deliver a pulse because it knows you've got your own pulse, or it can do what's called dual mode where it senses an atrial beat and delivers a ventricular pulse so that you keep AV synchrony. There is a fourth position that's called rate responsiveness. That just, you'll see an R at the end if that's on. And basically that means the pacemaker will try and work out what your heart rate should be using a combination of things like your respiratory rate, your, an accelerometer telling it how fast you're moving, um, things like that. And then it can, it can increase your heart rate if it thinks you're exercising. The algorithms aren't perfect, but they're pretty good. And they're good for someone who has SA nodal disease because remember the SA nodal disease is the coxswain that's not telling you how fast your heart rate should be. So the pacemaker has to work it out. So some 
with this four-letter combination, sometimes there'll be an R there and sometimes there just won't be anything in that fourth position that, and you just have the first three letters. That's right. If it doesn't have the rate responsiveness on, it'll just have the first three letters. And that means that your own essay node is probably working because we'd rather have your own essay node telling you what to do than the pacemaker's algorithm. Pacemaker's algorithm's not as good, but some people's essay node doesn't work and so I can't use that. Okay, if you can get your head around that, you've got more knowledge about pacemakers than... A large number of people. There's only one other thing to know is that if there's a D somewhere on the end, it means that there's a defibrillator as well. So would that be like VVIRD? Yeah, something yeah. like okay. that. Yeah, cool. Okay, so let's just quickly run through some examples to hammer that home. So if I have an AAIR pacemaker, Scott, what does the first position tell us? So the a. first A says that it paces the atrium. Mm -hmm. The second position is also an A. What does that mean? Senses the atrium. And here's the clincher. If the third position is an I, A-A-A-I, what does that mean? So if it senses an intrinsic beat in the atrium, it will inhibit pacing. Yeah. So this is a single chamber pacemaker only in the atrium, and all it's doing is looking for an a P wave. If it sees one, it won't pace. If it doesn't see one, it'll pace. The R tells us that it'll increase the pacing rate when it thinks that the heart rate needs more, so it's rate responsive. And you rarely use this anymore because there's actually a reasonable amount of people who develop AV nodal block, even if they start with only signs of no disease. And you don't want to have to put in another lead later on. So you should do both. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, what about VVIR? This is pretty similar to before, Scott. So this time we've got the first positions of V. So it paces, so it paces the ventricle. Yep, and the second position is V. So it senses in the ventricle. And the third position is an I, so similar to last time. So if it senses an intrinsic beat in the ventricle, it will inhibit pacing. Great. And we've got R on here as well, which means it's going to do a bit of rate responsive stuff if the patient's exercising. So this is really common, VVIR pacing. This is between this and the next one we'll talk about. That's going to be like 95% of your pacemakers. And um, that this is used for people who are in AF because you're not trying to keep that AV synchrony. You're just pacing the ventricle. Because remember, once someone's in AF, the pacemaker can't pace over AF. It can't, can't pace an atrium that's in AF. So you basically just ignore it and you just pace the ventricle as needed. And now DDD. This is the most common pacing mode. Um, and it's used in dual chamber pacing. So this gets a little bit hard to get your head around, but let's try it here. So first position, Scott, we've got a D. The first D. So um, it dual paces both the atrium and the ventricle yeah can pace both the atrium and ventricle and the second position we've got a d as well so again it dual pace dual senses both the atrium and the ventricle now this is where people get a little bit messed up and i'll try and make this clear but the third position is also a d so that means that it does dual it inhibits atrial pacing if it senses something in the atrium so if it sees a p wave it won't pace the atrium but it also tracks or triggers after the um if it senses or paces something in the atrium it'll pace in the ventricle a short delay afterwards usually it'll try and keep it a bit like the PR interval so about 200 milliseconds so that you have that natural sort of AV sequential pacing so that you don't feel sick or short of breath and this is really common and it, most people will be in DDD and if you can get that then you're doing a really good job there's only one last one and we kind of spoke a bit about it before and that's VOO Scott so let's run through this one it should be simple first positions of V so it paces the ventricle. The second position's an O. So there's no sensing of any chamber. And the third position's an O. So there's no response to any sensed events. So this is the quote-unquote dumb pacemaker. This thing is just pacing at a set rate. So mm. say 70 beats per minute. 
And where you might see this is in emergency situations or when you put the magnet on. When you put the magnet on, you get this. And it's kind of your bailout. It takes away all the advanced things that the pacemaker's trying to do. It takes away the therapies, if you have a magnet on, that um, that defibrillator does. So, you know, it'll just pace and keep the person alive until you can work out what to do next. Yeah, Maybe in an unstable rhythm where some of their beats are coming from pace beats and some of them are like intrinsic beats coming from somewhere else, right? Or yeah, well, anytime you have a problem with sensing or like what you were talking about with... Um, pacemaker-mediated tachycardia, which is a problem with the pacemaker sensing itself and trying mm. to track itself. Mm. If you just put it in simple asynchronous mode, it will stop doing any of that complex stuff. So is this magnet mode? Well, VOO, which is also what magnet mode puts you in, yeah. Okay, so same thing. VOO means just pacing the ventricle and ignoring everything else. OO is no sensing and no response to sensing. Cool. So this is what saved that patient, basically. This is what saved yeah. that patient, yeah. Well, VOO. <laughs> um, so there's also a quick note on defibrillator function definitely way past the scope of this podcast but what i want you to know is really that defibrillators can do two things they can well they can pace but they can also shock which is very painful and it's really a life-saving maneuver it feels like getting kicked in the chest and patients can develop ptsd after getting shocked um but they can also do what's called anti-tachycardia pacing which is where you might try and pace really fast for vt at the start to see if you can just get them out of them without shocking them and sometimes patients who have really sick hearts will be getting anti-tachycardia pacing all day and not realizing it. Their heart will just keep getting broken out of VT. The only danger with anti-tachycardia pacing is it can send them into VF, in which case they need a shock anyway. Ventricular fibrillation. Yep. Where there's no coordinated um, contraction of the ventricles. Yeah, your blood is basically still and you'll black out within about eight seconds. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, you can cost, customize all of those things and it gets really complicated, but that's all you need to know. That's what a defibrillator can do. So let's go to another case. Mehmet, a 63-year-old sled dog trainer, has been brought to the hospital after an unruly sled dog bit his arm. He is febrile with a temperature of 39 degrees in the ED. Days later, he goes staph aureus on his blood cultures. Complicating matters, Mehmet had a dual-chamber pacemaker implanted about 18 months ago because he was blacking out. The ID and cardiology teams represented here today come together to discuss the best course of action. Should they try and remove his device? And what are the relevant considerations if they do? Mm, it's a tough one. Yeah, maybe you can take over here, Scott. So I guess firstly, um, tell me a bit, Roel, about um, pa- removal of pacemakers. Because I remember hearing that there was one man in the entire um, state of Victoria where we live who, <laughs> could, who could remove them and then he retired. That's right. It's about, f- well, how many people live in Victoria now? Probably five million? Is that? Yeah. I think six even. Yeah. yeah. So there's one person who is doing the five or six million people in Victoria um, to remove pacemakers. Now, if it's only been in for a short amount of time, what do I mean by short? Less than six months, maybe less than one year if you've got a daring person a lot of people will try and remove it themselves in terms of not the patients but pacemaker operators um, but if it's been more than one year certainly more than two years you'd need to call in this specialty guy neil strathmore he's got a little protege who's taken over thank god so now we've got someone else who can do it um, so it's a very difficult procedure uh, medicare requires that there's a surgeon standing in the room ready to go to open the chest up in case it goes wrong um, it can go seriously wrong uh, the patient is often fully prepped as though they're going to have a full stenotomy uh, before they start. Uh, and that is because the leads get really stuck down in multiple places, to the heart and also to all the veins that they run through to get to the heart. And in trying to remove it or cut everything away, you can just either cut open one of the major veins, like the superior vena cava, or you can cut open the heart, um, which has a bad prognostic outcome. So 
in the right hands though in someone who's experienced like those guys are you could be looking at a one to two percent mortality but it's certainly not something you take lightly and you basically are considering that this person could need full cardiothoracic surgery in which case if you're looking at an 80 year old or an 85 year old it's looking pretty bleak and mm. it's something you want to avoid but the most common indications that someone asks to have the pacemaker removed are infection failure of the leads with an inability to get new ones in because they're fully blocking the way the old ones or venous obstruction and again that's kind of blocking all the veins and symptoms of swelling and pain due to that um, and so we work very heavily with the infectious diseases team and take what they say on board and, and try and work out for each patient what's the best option here um, some of the things that we consider is whether they have blood cultures that are positive and whether the uh, transesophageal echocardiogram shows that there's a big infection on the leads but there's also other things like from Scott's end about what type of bug it is, what type of antibiotics you have available, I imagine. What else would you consider from an ID point of view, Scott? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're the two main things. So a bug like Staph aureus is a common cause of prosthetic device infections um, and also um, quite hard to treat. Uh, um, you, you might need weeks of IV antibiotics. Um, in You'd be very suspicious in this case that this patient had a um, pacemaker lead infection even if you didn't have really suggestive findings on toe or multiple days of positive blood cultures. Whereas if you had another um, bacteria, maybe like an E. coli or something with a bacteremia in a patient with a pacemaker and they had a you know, concurrent UTI or something, you might you know, work with the hypothesis that this patient has had a UTI with bacteremia but their pacemaker hasn't been infected. Because if we can't take it out, then this patient will need lifelong antibiotics. Mm lifelong suppressive antibiotics because the bacteria make a biofilm on the on the prosthetic device and antibiotics can't penetrate that very well so we often find that once they've got really locked onto that bit of plastic or metal we can't get rid of it without taking out the device itself and what are there specific specific bacteria from my own learning specific bacteria that are more likely to form biofilms does Staph aureus do it, do you know? Uh, there are. Staph aureus can do it. Lots of other ones can do it too. I actually want to mention in this case, just if you see an MCQ with a, a dog bite or a cat bite, um, you can get Staph aureus from anything that breaks the skin. But the, the classic that some of you MCQ wizards out there might be complaining that <laughs> wasn't the answer is uh, Capnocytophagia or Pastorella species. I so saw his eye twitching when I said Staph aureus instead <laughs> of one of those two. <laughs> yeah, just in MCQ land, it's one of the <laughs> iron rules. Yeah. But I mean, staph always live on the skin and, mm. you know, they can live in animals' mouths as well. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and look, this is why it's a team discussion because it's a big operation, but you're really committing the person to, you know, a pretty hard life of ongoing antibiotics and maybe recurrent or breakthrough infections down the track if they don't have it removed. And so it is going to be a team decision. And, and look, depending on where you are, as I said, it, you may not even have this option available to you, depending on whether you have an operator who's capable of doing these things or willing of doing these things because I think they're pretty stressful procedures due to the, you know, the fact that things can go wrong so quickly and and i don't know if we talk we're going to talk about this later but it's also important what the indication for the pacemaker is too right that's right you forgot to mention that so if someone has is dependent on the pacemaker and you're going to take it out you have to work out a way to make their heartbeat for however long it is until you put it back in and you know you don't really want to put it back in but until the infection's cleared which the minimum i've seen is sort of 48 72 hours and that's at a sort of stretch i think they often prefer you guys i prefer it even longer if we can mm, ideally we can, yeah a couple of weeks yeah. so so that's a tricky thing to think about as well because you have to yeah the person will die without a pacemaker so it's um there's a lot of thought that goes into these decisions and that's why you got to be careful as well about 
not putting a pacemaker in someone who has a reversible cause or maybe could get away without it because this this could be um, the a big life-threatening thing for them down the track. Mm. So that's all we had on... Um, that was a nice little ending sound. What was that? <laughs> well, perfectly timed. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is about all we had for you today. Thanks for sticking through if you managed to today. I know that this is pretty niche stuff, but hopefully it's at least one source you can use. Scott was saying before, you know, when he learnt pacemakers, he knew a lot of this stuff, but you kind of learn it in dribs and drabs over years and years and it doesn't connect together nicely. So... Yeah, hopefully you find this useful. If you do, please jump on iTunes. We're always interested in um, getting five-star ratings, not so interested in the one-star ratings. Um, for that, you'll have to go to Scott's <laughs> BDSM Love page it. where he likes to get poor ratings. <laughs> <laughs> Gets up on it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anything to finish on, Scott? No, I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, <laughs> neither confirm or deny. <laughs> I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.